You're listening to Grassroots, www.innovationstudios.com. This is the final curtain call where I celebrate legendary grassroots music figures. Now, I said I had something special when a gentleman like Bob Mundy cites you as an influence. You're doing something right. As a member of the Fingers, he had a, a, a certain amount of access in the 60s, but he has got a long career, this gentleman. Well, he doesn't look old enough, though. That's the thing, so I'll be asking him about that. I'll get straight to the point. I'm with the legendary... John Bobin. <laughs> good morning. Was that was that a big enough build up for you? You owe me a tenner now. <laughs> I do. Your checks in the post. We'll call it twenty quid. So, reading through your notes, occasionally during this interview, you'll hear the rustling of paper, and the reason is because there is so much about you that I want to ask. So many things that I want to talk about. You've had, well, let's be honest about it, a sixty-year career, nearly. Yes. And I only look 26. You do? 27, John. Let's not get carried away now. Um, I'm going to get straight to it. Bass, uh, first bass, why? Why the bass? What was it? Hey. Well, uh, originally I played lead guitar in a duo at the time. Okay. Um, we'd actually tinkered with playing uh, ukuleles, my friend Mark Mills and I. Okay. And when we were playing ukuleles, we were learning stuff like Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, and um, Oh You Beautiful Doll. So very different. Oh, old stuff. Old but school. But the, the first two chords that I ever played were the opening chords of Apache, uh, which a friend of mine showed me. And I was very, very fond of, very influenced by the shadows, as were lots of people. Oh, I was, time, yeah. And lots of well-known guitarists, as you know. Mm. Um, so we started playing uh, just in youth clubs and in, in people's houses and things like that. <clears throat> I was playing lead not very well. He was playing rhythm very well, as it happened. Okay. Uh, we met a guy called Lefty, Ken Lefwich, who was a fabulous guitarist. Uh, he was better than I was. So I became a bass player. Um, but I've never really looked back. I mean, Jet Harris was a, a very, very early influence for lots of bass players, including me. Hmm. And I've enjoyed playing bass. I like being part of a really good rhythm section, and why not? You know, it's important, isn't it? The, you know, the backbeats, like they say in the uh, in the rock and roll songs, the backbeat's so important. I think so. Uh, and um, Steve Gadd famously said that technique is all very well, but if you don't know what a backbeat is, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Is it um, all groove rather than sort of... Um, in the, whereas lead guitar is kind of airbrushing over what's going on behind you. Bass playing is kind of a groove thing. You've got to keep everything tight, everything... I, I think that's right, and it's important to, to be in sync and work really well with a, a good drummer. Uh, and a lot of the time, if you're working with a good drummer, mm. I find that you, that you do things and you suddenly might do a little bit of syncopation and you think, oh, look, he's just done exactly the same as me. Yeah, well, things happen, um, don't they, in the and, studio? And, you know, the, the bass players and drummers do tend to um, to listen to each other. Yeah. You know? And they don't show off quite as much as lead guitarists and singers. No, no. We're, we're big heads, us lead guitar players. And this is in your early teens. I mean, you're 13, 14? Well, I was 12. 12? When I started playing bass. Yeah. And I had a, a not very good German bass, a Hopf. Uh, no, it was Hopf guitar, my first one. Actually, it was pink hammered thing. And the first bass I had was a, a really awful Dallas tuxedo. So uh, Everybody had an awful bass. It was 1961. I've also had some very good bases that I've sold along the way because of divorces and various things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you're a true musician then. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So this is 1961. You've got, um, I've got written down, I made some notes on you, the Phantoms, the Thunderbeats, uh, the Beat Roots, Climax. Yeah, that was the same band, actually. All the same band. You uh, were going okay, through Actually, we had two different guitarists. We, um, uh, we had a guy called Ken Liff, which, yep. first of all, Yep. He left and we had Steve Porter for a while and then Ken came back. Um, uh, Lefty's no longer with us. Okay. But actually, uh, his last band was also De Management because he was a founder member of De Management. Right. Yeah, I noticed that as well, that, that, that a lot of them <clears throat> kind of all come full circle. You end up working with a lot of yeah. people again. He was very good. He was a master luthier. Very, very clever. He made fantastic Spanish guitars that sold for about four and a half grand. And uh, an exceptionally talented guitarist. Uh, he was a, a great planner. I'm, I'm like that. You know, I always say that um, failing to plan is planning to fail. Yeah, it's a good way I of looking I didn't invent at it. that phrase, but it's, it's definitely right. Well, you can have it. And he was very organised. I remember him famously saying to Vic in a rehearsal, Vic Collins, you know, the well-known pedestal yeah, player, great guitarist, great mate, um, what words are you singing in the chorus? And Vic said, the wrong ones. <laughs> fair, fair enough at least but, he's honest about it but Lefty's, Lefty's no longer with us unfortunately but. and then Bob Clouter 
came in. Um, Bob Clouter came in on drums about 60... About 61, 62 in, towards the In the Phantoms, yeah. In the yeah. Phantoms, yeah. Well, of course, he he actually conned us a bit. Um, he said, oh, I'm a drummer. So we said, would you like to drum? And then we found out he'd been um, playing a bass drum in a pipe band or something like that. Um, <laughs> so but, people used to blag their way into bands even then. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but Bob Bob's a great drummer. You know, I've known him for such a long I was at school with him. Okay. Um, and uh, he, was, he was very good at playing drums and not going to school. Mm. I remember that the uh, religious instruction uh, teacher said to him when he turned up on the rare occasion that he was at school, Mr. Clouter, he said, how nice of you to drop in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been in about five or six bands with, with Bob over the years, and uh, he's, he's a great guy and a good drummer. It's funny how it's family. It's, it's like if you work with somebody, even when you're very young, um, at different stages through your life, because you've worked with them, it's almost like um, seeing an old family member again and you start talking about it and then you say, oh, let's do something, we must meet up. Very much so. And then you end up sort of, yeah. you know, looking through your, your notes as I did, yeah. the amount of people that, cr- yeah. that you, you were kind of in the middle there and people were kind of weaving in and out of your life. <laughs> Are you not easy to get on with, uh, John? Is it? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a, te- I'm a terror. <clears throat> Um I, I, I do have this... Um, sort of a PCD, planning compulsive disorder, you know, and I really like to think certain um, that I know what I'm going to do and why I'm going to do it mm. and how I'm going to do it, and I, I just can't help that. Uh, my wife says to me, oh, you should just relax a bit, and I said, well, if I do this, then I relax. That's it, yeah, that's, um, <laughs> that's what makes you you, I guess. <laughs> so you're making the transition at that time, you're finding your feet with your band and you're starting to work stuff out. When do you start looking at it and saying, let's write something ourselves? Well, that was really... Uh, well, in fact, I did write a couple of things um, in um, in The Phantoms. One was called Aurora Borealis, which was just a very simple instrumental, which I can half remember now. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but um, in The Fingers, um, I, I wrote things, I co-wrote things with uh, Mo Whittam yep. and uh, a man that we called Ducky, uh, Peter Ducky, but it was actually Peter Eden who was quite a well-known uh, record producer who, who lives locally still. Right. Um, and um, a couple of the things that uh, that we wrote still get re-released on psychedelic compilations. Yeah, I saw that. It, it's been makes me laugh, really, because a lot of the fingers said they were psychedelic. We, we never were, really. It was Pete's idea. He said, let's announce ourselves as the first psychedelic band uh, in the UK. Right. And he asked me one day if I'd do an interview... Um, for Melody Maker. And I said, well, um, what's it all about? He said, it's about psychedelic music. And I said, but I don't know anything about psychedelic music. He, he said, well, he said, you're normally full of shit. You'll, you'll manage. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so this guy phoned me up and Pete had warned me that he was a great Charlie Mingus fan. Okay. Um, and he, he said, well, can you explain it? I said, well, it's really difficult. I said, because it's, it's colours, it's different things, it's... Fuzz boxes, it's you know sort of Charlie Mingus on steroids, or and I thought well, this is all rubbish. And then mm. they printed it in the Melody Maker, and and um, Tony Hicks was also interviewed, and Graham Nash. So I was in good company. They yeah. were probably probably blagging as well, actually. Everybody was blagging at that time. <laughs> I suppose you're all trying to be something different. I mean, it's something that throughout my music career, even the first band, you know, we're going to be the next best thing. We don't sound like anybody. And it still goes on today. We don't sound like anybody. And then within two minutes, you're like, well, I can hear that's that, 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 that. That's you know, true. I can tell the influences. Well, the thing is, um, uh, when, when I joined them, they were a four piece. Okay. And um, uh, we, we actually uh, inherited an organist because the landlord of the Elms, where we played three nights a week for quite a while, right. had formed a band and bought the mortgage and it didn't quite work out. And he really liked the organist, who was a guy called Alan Beecham. Great jazz player, actually. Okay. Uh, he lives up north now. And he said, you can come and do these gigs if Alan joins you. Um, luckily, he was very good and a very nice guy. Uh, we got on very well with him. Mm. Um, and then uh, uh, shortly afterwards, Bob joined us, Bob Clouter, so he, he's back in the fold again. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mo Whittam joined us. And I'd been playing with Mo in a in a second version of the Orioles. The original uh, Orioles had uh, Doug Sheldrake in it, who was also a good guitarist. Uh, that was the first band I played in with with Mickey Jupp. Right. Okay. But um, the the fingers um, when I joined them, they were doing kink stuff and you know nice nice pop stuff, good stuff. 
And we, we gradually started playing a lot more Spencer Davis, teeny bit of blues and some soul stuff, Sam and, Sam and Dave things, and James, mm-hmm. early James Brown, not the horrible funky stuff. No, not but, that, yeah, but the, the early, early James early Brown stuff. stuff. And um, Pete said, well, this is all very well, you know, but there are thousands of bands playing exactly this kind of stuff, you know, and if you really want to do something different, you should look um, further afield. And he got us interested in... Uh, the Young Rascals and Loving Spoonful and uh, Timmy Hardin and various things like that. And um, and he also said, you need to look different. Uh, from now on, you will wear hats and braces and you know, granddad shirts, uh, which we did. And uh, and we were probably the only band that was silly enough to do that, except for another local band that copied us, and we told them off. <laughs> <laughs> Stealing your ideas. But the... Um, uh, <clears throat> The singer of uh, um, the, the Fingers, he was a guitarist. He was the original guitarist, and we kind of gently persuaded him that um, it would be good for him to uh, get freed up and be more of a showman. And that's why we brought Murray in, who's an excellent guitarist. Everybody knows what a great guitarist he is. Yeah. And uh, this guy, Ricky Mills, who who also became known as Daddy Limburg on one of our records, okay. was an absolutely fantastic showman. He was so he used to run around and uh, throw his mic all over the place and do all the things that Rod Stewart did later on, if you like. And you could see that in him, but the guitar was kind of restricting him to a certain extent. I think so. Leaving think him so. sort of stood behind a mic if he had the opportunity to... And he, he was really, really good. I mean, there's a video on um, YouTube of us when we appeared in the German television show in 1967. It was called Beat, Beat, Beat. It was quite an in, um, quite an influential show at the time. Mm. And they had the tremolos on, the equals, uh, Sue and Sonny, Tiffany uh, and us. They also had uh, Don Stora and Cherry Wayne, which were probably before your time, but um, Cherry Wayne was a quite a good organist and he was a sort of a rock and roll drummer um and that um that video surfaced um uh 40 years later somebody obviously copied it from a film wow and even looking at rick on that you can think this guy is you know a lot of charisma you know really good it's important though isn't it if you've got a good front man absolutely yeah you know i mean there's too many bands over the years that i've seen and they're just kind of standing there and doing their job and i always feel like if you just get somebody with a bit of energy, but the spirit, because well, it's infectious, isn't it? You well, know? music is is not just about being technically perfect. No. It's nice to have a band that's really good. And I must say, all all the versions of the management have been really good. This current version is outstanding. Mm. Three really good singers. And and um, Billy B, uh, one of our singers, and Bob are both excellent front men. And they've taken to giving each other a bit of stick on stage, which the audience love because they like the banter. You know, they like to feel that the <clears> the, the, grand, the band is not just playing and being serious and pompous about what they're playing. No, definitely. They they, they want to be able to feel that there is that emotional connection. And and you know, as a uh, as a, a musician, that if the audience is liking what you're doing, and you can see by the way they're tapping their toes or singing or dancing yeah. or whatever it is, then you play better. And they like it more, and it's a, a lovely upward spiral, isn't it? It is. It, keep, it keeps going. You have a bit of energy. You break yeah. the fourth wall as well. It's a bit like in acting, they call it breaking the fourth wall, where you look at the camera. And yeah. I suppose on when you're on stage, you're playing as a band, but you kind of invite the audience into that world. They can see that you're, you're a group of lads travelling in a the van. They, you, there's, there's like a family thing going on. You do. Yeah. And then they, they sort of think, oh, I like this. I, like, I want to be part of this. And they get up, they have a dance, and then you've... That's more important sometimes than the music being absolutely precise, is that people feel... If you go back to the 60s, I mean, the there were some bands that were around that were great fun, um, but not technically perfect, but there was that energy and spontaneity mm. and a bit of fun, which is not always present. I mean, when, for example, the progressive bands, some of them were really, really good, but so serious about yeah. what they were doing. We look at The Who as a prime example. There's an example of, of a band that was as loose as you could probably want to be. Yeah. But yeah. if you wanted to go and see them, yeah. because you didn't know what you were going to get. And yes. I think that's kind of part of the excitement, maybe, is you go and see a band and you think, this is, what am I going to get tonight? What are they going to play? Yeah, that's Whereas right. most of the time you go and see a lot of those bands, you think, well, they're going to play that one, that one, that one. Well, with us, what they what they think sometimes is, what on earth are they going to say next? <laughs> <laughs> we were um, playing somewhere fairly recently, and Paul Milligan, who's a great league guitarist, 
uh, was changing guitars because uh, he can, <laughs> and uh, we, we were we were just uh, standing there waiting, and there was an audience on the floor, and this lady said, "Oh, I'm." In anticipation, I said, no, it's not anticipation, it's musical foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, she thought that was very funny. You've got to do that. You've got yeah. to do that. Just before the fingers, you had the motifs. Oh, the motifs. Now, yeah. that, that was... Um, the, the Phantoms went through a phase where, where we did all um, shadow stuff. And then we started to sing. Uh, and it obviously wasn't very good because we were only about 13, so probably squeaky Beatles stuff. You're waiting for your balls to drop. Um, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) For a start. And we were actually um, enjoying what we were playing, although we were playing in a a wine bar in Southend, and we didn't realise that there was a brothel upstairs. So I think that would have really done wonders for us. (laughs) It was a shame you weren't 19 and playing then. (laughs) But um, um, we were playing all all, all, uh, commercial stuff, and, and I'd been to see... Um, the Paramounts. Oh, um, remind, uh, no, don't That's remind Gary me. Don't Brooker. remind me. Robin, Tra- Robin Trower. Gary Brooker. Robin Trower. At the Brooker. time it was uh, Barry Wilson, yep. who became BJ Wilson, was he called okay. himself, Broke Harm. And Diz Derrick. Uh, Diz Derrick, fabulous bass player. Uh, he was the one that made me buy a, a Selma treble and bass 50 in a Goliath and Epiphone Rivoli, because I just loved the sound of that. And he played these lovely loping, walking bass things. Really good, uh, good bass player. Fantastic band, and and uh, prior to that, uh, another very good mate of mine, Mickey Brownlee, had been in the Paramounts yep. uh, that time with Chris Cropping. But Gary and Juppie in in the Orioles, I thought, what on earth are these guys doing? You know, it's blues and it's rock and roll. It's a bit of Chuck Berry, it's Slim Harpo, and mm. the various other things that they played at the time. And Gary was he was singing Ray Charles things like Ray Charles when he was very young and he's got an outstanding voice lovely pianist and he still runs um, No Stiletto Shoes his rock and roll band I okay. you probably know about with Andy Fair with the Low I do yeah and Dave Bronze was in that band as well and um, uh, you know the, the, the lineup changes now and again but they do really Paramount's repertoire <laughs> so he still likes it but uh, I must admit that uh, Gary is one of my most favourite singers of all time I love Proko Haram I love The Shadows now you yeah. see now people say to me how can you like The Shadows and Proko Haram they're poles apart well that's the reason yeah because um, music um, when when you're growing up you, you, you get a bit snobbish about the music you like for example when I liked blues I thought oh I won't like The Shadows anymore which is rubbish, of course. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, um, as I've grown older, I, I like a bit of opera, I like some classical music, and I like the right kind of music for the mood that I'm in. Yeah. Because absolutely. of that emotional yeah. context. Yeah, of course. So so when you go and see a band like um, the Paramounts, and you're only about 13 or 14, maybe slightly older, you think, wow, this is really you know something that's really punchy. It's something I've not heard of. They were getting records from... Um, from the States, just like the Beatles were. From yeah, everybody French, was doing, know, doing yeah. rock and roll stuff. Yeah. And um, so um, I, I wanted to uh, to do something a little bit more bluesy. The Motives were doing exactly that. And uh, I joined them. Um, they were they were a good band. Um, I, I can't remember whether we ever gigged. We might have done two or three gigs. And then they said, we're not getting any gigs really, uh, not, not really playing out, and we need to to become more commercial and I, I said well you know re- you know, that, that's what you want to do that's not what I want to do, what I want to, do. I want to play some, some R&B mm. and uh, <clears throat> I formed a band called Red Green and his Blues Combo and uh, Mo Whitten was in that uh, with Mark Mills that was in the, the Phantoms yeah Barry Barry Scanlon Barry Scanlon Bob Clouter again Bob Clouter again yeah <clears throat> yep. and a guy called Paul I'm very sorry Paul but I can't remember his name but, uh, <laughs> but we used to rehearse in one of my dad's shops um, in the evenings in the t- uh, Broadway market and uh, it was coming on to being a good band and at the same time I was still going to see the Orioles a lot um, Doug Sheldrake decided to leave the Orioles and uh as Mickey Jupp put it, he kind of reversed himself into Red, Green and his Blues combo. So he ended up with um, Barry Scanling, Mo Whitton, Bob Clouter, myself and Juppy. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that. You know, and we, we used to play at the Cricketers in the dance hall, which became the Club Riga, Riga, the Riga yeah. Music Bar. Yeah. We used to play there um, 
three or four nights a week. We'd sometimes go and play after a gig there um, at the Studio Jazz Club. And we did a, a few other places as well. But um, that was my baptism of fire in beginning to play in something that was quite different to what I was used to. So even at that young age, you know, probably six, 17, 17 maybe? Um, I was probably... <clears throat> when I first saw them, I might have been 15, mm. the Orioles, and and then I thought, yeah, this is this is something I want to do. And, and Jappy's a very, very talented uh, guy. He's a, a lovely singer. He's written 400 songs. Wow. Uh, and they've been recorded by lots of people, like The Searches and Prokohorum, Dr Feelgood, uh, Curls of Flyers... The Judds recorded one of his songs on a, a, a big, big selling album. Mm. He maintains he's never made any money out of it, about it, but um, who who knows? <laughs> I saw, yeah, I saw an interview with him from one of the magazines about 1975 with a band called Burglar Bill. I don't know if you have ever heard of. I've heard of Bill. them. Yeah. They keep coming up when people are talking to me about the grassroots music. They keep coming up. And I can't find any members of them or, or anything. I'm, I'm, so I'm kind of finding out a bit more about them. They were kind of on, on the edge of making it around that time with um, Mickey Jupp and... Well, Burglar, uh, Burglar and Bill stuff. were one of the bands that were around at the time when we were playing in Legend. Um, yeah, it would have been sort of mid-70s maybe? or early uh, Legend, No, Legend started in 1969 oh, right. uh, with um, an acoustic version of the band which had uh, Bill Firefield on drums, uh, who became... Uh, Bill Legend in T-Rex, T-Rex later on. Yeah. Great drummer. Uh, 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 no, no, that's wrong, actually. I've told you something wrong. It was uh, a guy, Nigel Dunbar on drums. Okay. <clears throat> Nigel Dunbar on drums. Uh, and they had um, a, a bass player, who's, I think his name was Steve Gear, Juppy and Chris East. Uh, right. And Chris East is a very, very old friend of uh, Juppy's who incidentally wrote My Kind of Life for... Cliff Richard. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and uh, he maintains that um, it earned him enough to buy two cottages in Cumbria. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's all right. Chris is a nice guy. Anyway, they, I listened to that album and I thought, God, this is really good. I like this. And um, for some reason or other, they didn't gig very much. They might have done one gig. And, and Juppie said, Would I like to join uh, a, a, a new electric version? And this is where Bill Firefield came in. Okay. Sorry, I was wrong about that's that. That's all right. No, I make mistakes now and again. Of just course you do. Yeah, here. everybody does. It's not a problem. Um, and um, that band, um, uh, he, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd gone back to work and I, I said, no, I'm not certain I want to do this, you know. And uh, they did one single, I think, with um, Matthew Fisher on bass because uh, he's normally an organist, as you know. Okay. They had uh, Robin Trower on no, they had Robin Trower producing it, Mo on guitar, and, and Barry Wilson on drums. Uh, B.J. Wilson from Progo Horum. Okay. Which was a great thing. But then Jappy said, well, come on, you know, you really ought to join the band. Um, so I did. Uh, uh, and that band was um, Juppy, Mo Whittam, myself, and uh, Bill Fifield. And um, we, um, we, we started off doing a lot of rock and roll, uh, which is one of Juppy's... Big loves, really. Why does, not? Yeah. You know, rock Why, and roll. Yeah. Is, Why not? He's a rock and roll. That's <laughs> what he does, isn't yeah. it? It's the old black, if you like, <laughs> not yeah, the new is. black. Even. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a very uh, punchy band, very, very powerful. Um, and uh, we we did quite a lot of um, uh, radio work, uh, mainly Radio Two, Top Gear, and uh, Emperor Roscoe, and various other. We used to um, record things at the Paris Theatre in London. Small okay. place, but lovely atmosphere. And um, that was the band that did the, the Red Boot album, um, which was never called the Red Boot album. It was right. just called Legend. Um, and the first acoustic Legend album was just called Legend. Uh, and uh, it had a picture of two red boots on fire, uh, which we hated. And actually okay. looking at it, I like it now. You know, it's, it's You've very, mellowed. It's very effective, yeah. <laughs> My wife wouldn't necessarily agree with that. <laughs> but... Um, uh, that the Red Boot album, um, we think the Fingers had done a little bit of recording uh, before, but that was the time when I started to do a bit more recording. And I've always liked recording, um, but recording is always for me. The minute the red light goes on, you think oh, mm. I mustn't make any mistakes. Yeah, and of course, in those days, 
it was that much more difficult because, of course, now people can say, oh, I'll just move this around. Of course, correct yes, of course. Um, and in those days, you know, people used to do lots of takes and then choose the least worst one. Yeah. Um, get- <clears throat> even in the fingers. Um, we uh, uh, were being produced by a guy called Peter Eden and uh, we were being recorded uh, mainly at um, Abbey Road in Studio Number 1. Uh, where the Beatles used to do all this. Stuff. Oh, just throw Abbey yeah, Road we were, in there like we, it's nothing. We were not quite <laughs> as successful as them, um, but um, uh, they'd they'd expect you to go in there and record two songs in three hours, and that included setting up, getting a sound, which was much more difficult because mm. they didn't have sophisticated graphic equalizers no. and effects units and things in those days. I think Abbey Road might have been a four-track studio, so you sometimes had to mix things down, bounce them down, bounce so them you down, couldn't yeah. change them later on. Yeah. And uh, you had to be uh, set up, get the sound, record two songs, do all the harmonies, get rid of any guide vocals that you've done, do the lead vocals, um, take your gear to bits and be out within three hours. Uh, and in fact, on one record, um, EMI said... Um, um, you know, we're going to put some session musicians in. Uh, they didn't trust young oiks to record things quickly. And we ended up, we were very disappointed, but we ended up with uh, Clem Cattini on drums from the Tornadoes, and who's also been on 40-odd top hits, uh, number yeah, one great hits. legendary session. Uh, Joe Moretti, a uh, very, very well-known uh, guitarist. I think he played the solo on Shaking All Over with Johnny oh, okay. King the Pirates. He was playing rhythm with Alan Parsons from Blue Mink, playing guitar, another very good yeah. uh, uh, session musician, and Nicky Hopkins on piano. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he only with played the with the Rolling Stones. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so in all honesty, we were only about um, 18 or 19, mm. something like that. So in all certainty, they were miles, miles better musicians than us, but it, it was disappointing for us. But, you know, we, we did actually sing all that. But uh, later we did some really good stuff that, that we liked. We did some awful stuff, which we didn't which um, Peter Eden wanted us to do because it was more commercial. So we did a couple of Jeff Stevens things. Uh, he's the guy that wrote Winchester Cathedral. And uh, and in fact, when Winchester Cathedral came out, <coughs> it had been done, recorded with session musicians. And uh, Peter Eden um, was still very friendly with Jeff Stevens because they used to co-manage Donovan. All right. And uh, he said... Um, to the fingers, how would you feel about being the new vaudeville band? And we said, oh no, we want to do our own stuff, you know. And, and uh, we made, in, in, in my days of playing, I made some other bad decisions. Probably we should have done that and then changed what we were playing later, you know. And we'd have had to have had um, a brass section in. And actual fact, I know uh, uh, Mick Wilshire very well, who, who was the guitarist of new vaudeville band, and he and I nearly formed a band once. We, we, we rehearsed as a a band which didn't have a name, uh, but uh, and that was with uh, a guy called Martin Goebel, who became uh, Mark West and Mark Wesley is a quite a well-known DJ. So, so busy <laughs> people go off and do different things. You know, so. Yeah, it's funny how it turns. Yeah. Uh, you get these things. You maybe look back sort of these years later and yeah. think that could have if I'd have yeah. maybe followed that down or followed yeah. that down. But in that moment, you've got to go with your gut instinct. Yeah. I mean, this is you're in the fingers. You've started to write your own material, you started to record your... You signed to Polydor, was it, at that time? So we went to Polydor in the first place. Yeah. And then we were on uh, um, Columbia. Columbia, yeah. Columbia, yeah. You were with Columbia for slightly longer, or you released a, a few more so- um, singles We, we did three, uh, three singles on Columbia. Uh, one was under the name Daddy Limburg, uh, because we'd run out of uh, uh, recording time. They allowed you a certain amount of co- recording time every every year okay and peter eden said well that's all right we'll just go and we'll call it something else um and he paid the finger session fees for doing that right and um uh i don't know if he paid rick the singer <laughs> but, but but rick became daddy limbeck and we recorded this song called shirl which is okay um it, it's not my favorite in fact the new vaudeville band recorded that as well uh, it was a jeff stevens song and uh, we ran out of time, and, and we were playing on uh, on that, and um, we had about a quarter of an hour left. And Pete said, well, you, you've got to just make something up. Uh, so we, we made a, I think, called Wade in the Shade, which was uh, really all drums and drums and bass and um, funny singing. 
And uh, somebody said said it sounded like Reg Presley on acid. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but that song uh, is it, still quite popular. It keeps being played uh, on funny radio stations in Kansas and things like that. You can't and, escape it then. Pardon? You can't escape it. No, that's start. right. And um, uh, and uh, I actually saw that on um, eBay, a uh, vinyl of that, which had flipped because Cheryl was really the A-side, was sold for over £300. Wow. And so everybody said to me, but you wish you'd got lots of those in your garage, which I didn't, of course. <laughs> um, but, um, but going back to the, the Red Boot album, that was... The first time I'd done a, an extended period of recording because of uh, you know we, we did it over a period of time obviously and and uh, that was done at Advision Studios and uh, um, Tony Visconti uh, who, who's since become you know maybe the world's top producer you know has produced everybody from Thin Lizzy to T Rex to Lou Reed you know loads of loads of well-known people yeah. David Bowie. You know, and he was in Spiders from Mars at one time as well. Right. But he was a good guy, uh, and he really knew what he was doing. He'd also produced Horum when Denny Cordell was a bit drunk as well. So um, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. It's uh, too late, too late you've now. Said it now. Uh, you've said it now. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> and he he uh, he was very patient with us um, and uh, in a very... Uh, understanding that we were fairly new to this game, really. Um, and uh, Juppy wanted him to record the whole album totally dry and put it all out dry. I said to him, well, why would you want to do that? You know, even when a classical orchestra records, they get a, like a large room reverb yeah. on or something like that to lift it a bit. And if you record it totally dry, you, you can do things afterwards okay. But, um, uh, well, now, of course... You can do amazing things to yeah, them. You could do less. Um, and in the end, um, Tony said, well, you know, it's, it's good. The music's good. The harmonies are good. The songs are great. You know, but I've got to do something to it. And he, and, he, and he did put effects on afterwards just to, right, just to liven it up a bit. You have to trust them, don't you? You have to, you have to, I mean, there's a reason why they are where they are, the producers and the engineers and stuff like that. And you have to. Well, I, I, I think he's an outstanding producer. He really is, and he um, he tells a good story in his autobiography, which is well worth reading, um, about recording an album called uh, Live and Dangerous with Thin Lizzy. Thin Lizzy, yeah. And they recorded it over several uh, gigs, and he said he knew that Phil Lynott was a very good bass player and a good showman and a good singer, but not necessarily all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they re-recorded various things, and Tony said it came out and it was dangerous, but not really very live. <laughs> <laughs> so you said to me about the recording process and how you, when the red light goes on, there's like a pressure to get it right. I think there is, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I had this conversation with most of the people I've interviewed, from um, Andy Price of the Pinkies, Bob last week, and um, obviously Riga Steve, I spoke yeah. to Riga Steve as well about the bands. There seems to be a thing then of trying to capture your live show on a record. Yes. Whereas these days it's kind of get the record done and then you can take it live. Yeah. So were you recording live as a band or were you kind of just play what you could and then overdubbing or did they not have a, the facility? Have they only got four tracks, I suppose? It's well, um, pieced together, is it? With the fingers, um, Peter didn't like to layer things and he would start off with bass and drums and the click track. Okay. Which was awful. Yeah. Soul destroying, you know. You, you just think, well, you know, there's just nothing to it, nothing to bounce off, there's no energy, nothing yeah. to listen to. Then he'd add the the different other musicians, and and uh, you know, um, and it just didn't feel right, you know. Yeah. And I, I always like uh, with Legend, we recorded reasonably live, mm. and we we might add some harmonies and things like that. Um, with the latest album that we've done with the management, we we did it in. Two and a half days. Two days um, in, a, in a studio in Whittam where we put down more or less everything. Right. And uh, just a half a day uh, when uh, there was a different vocal track put down and Bob decided he wanted to do an acoustic track on one track rather than play uh, electric rhythm. Okay. So to actually um, come out with an album... In two and a half days, mm. it's, it's pretty good. It's not like working six months doing good vibrations, is it? No, no, it isn't. No, I, I, I don't. I, I always think that 
when you're live and you're in, you've got the, the visuals as well. So you're looking at each other, you're yeah. bouncing off each other. Yeah, of it's a very um, energetic kind of chemistry, isn't it? Yes. Um, and then when you go into a studio and you're trying to get that down and somebody changes the way that you play in as much as a Friday night, Saturday night, whatever, you're working as a group. Then they say, right, it's just you two with a click track. Yeah. You, I think it just becomes like getting it played right rather than with any bounce or any fear. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the, the previous two albums that we've done with the management, uh, a guy called John Hannon produced us. Very, very talented. Um, uh, and uh, he, he did get a, a, a good sound for us. Um, but um, we were suddenly introduced to the new way of recording where you, you do less takes and the engineer can do amazing things with it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, more fixing. Um, but actually, less takes, in a way, is quite good because I famously heard a story that um, Cilla Black recorded one Burt Bacharach song 48 That's right. times. That's right. Have you heard take three? Absolutely, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. That's right, yeah. And, and, and then they decided to use take three. Yeah, that's right. Um, and she must have hated that song by the end. And, yeah. and, you know, and in, in, in other recording things, I've had the same thing. You play it and you think, oh, not this again. You know. And, of course, the thing is, let's be honest, you know, if, you're, if somebody makes a little uh, fumble-fingered mistake in one take, you've got no guarantee that somebody else isn't going to do something somewhere else no, of in course another not. take. Of course and not. that's why a lot of the early 60s things were just released because they were they sounded good and, and they, yeah, they connected well. Yeah, you know. definitely. And definitely. someone might say, I mean, there's one uh, Beatles track which has got some funny vocals there that shouldn't be there. I can't think what it is now. Yeah. might be Can't Buy Me Love. And they obviously just released that because they, they thought that was the best take that they'd got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, while we're on the subject of the Beatles, it's like I saw a stand in there. It's, like, it's very rare in any music that I've heard growing up and produced and everything to have a four count. But the four count at the start of I saw a stand in there has to be there. If you yeah. take it out, it doesn't work. Yeah. And it just has such a bounce to it. The song's bouncing before they've even played. One, yeah. two, three, it just kicks in. <clears throat> so they're playing live. You can tell that's live. Yes. And when, as you said to me, can you listen to your albums now and, and tell what's layered and what's live well it was only the fingers that did the the, the layering okay. stuff and it was only the early stuff because when we did some other stuff like i hear the sun uh, which uh, again was a co-written with uh, peter eden uh, by me uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and ricky mills uh, the the singer um we thought that was much better stuff didn't get released until relatively recently. Um, and all the Peter Eden stuff has been bought by Cherry Red okay. Records, who, a retro record company. You probably know them. I've heard of them. And yeah. um, they've, they've released um, a few fingers things, including something that we recorded in 1966 when we were four-piece. Wow. So just, and that's coming out in February. <laughs> yeah, so it didn't see the light of day for like 30... I mean, it appeared on a few psychedelic or whatever yeah. it is, uh, compilations, some of your stuff. Yeah. Was there anything released at the time? You released some singles at the time in uh, the sixties. Oh, the fingers we released. Yeah, um, we, le we released four singles. Yeah. We, we did. I go to sleep, which is a uh, Ray Davies song. We were supporting the Kinks in Ramsgate, the Supreme Ballroom, and okay. he, he came up to us and he, he looked spaced out really, and he he pointed a finger at me and he said, "The fingers, you recorded. I go to sleep." Not bad, he said, and just walked off. Because <laughs> it's his song, obviously. That's a big compliment, not yeah. bad. Um, but, um, and then we did uh, I'll Take You Where the Music's Playing, a Drifter's song. That yep. was the one with the, the, the stellar array of session musicians that I talked about. <laughs> uh, which, and they did a good job. Uh, um, then we did a thing called All Kinds of People, which was a bit more us doing things that we wanted to do, but it was still a Jeff Stevens song. Then we did Shirl, which was another Jeff Stevens song. Right. Uh, that was the one that had Wade in the Shade in it. On the B-side, yeah. But then we recorded a few things, one, something called Just Like Loving You, Baby, which is another co-written thing. I Hear the Sun, which was probably the nearest we did to anything psychedelic. Um, but um, in terms of um, recording live, John Hannon used to let us, let us record live as well. Um, and uh, and, and that, that was very good because you get a much better sound. Mm. When... Poor old John died uh, of a heart attack. We just didn't know what to do. 
Uh, we wanted to get somebody really good that we would feel uh, we just had some empathy with what we were trying to do. And um, we spoke to a couple of people um, who said, well, you know, we do tend to layer things. We, were, we had one musician at a time. And one guy said, I don't think that would work for the kind of stuff that you play because the stuff you play, 50s, 60s, little yeah. bit of 70s, you know, you really need... That. You need the rawness of it, don't yeah. you? And um, um, Paul said, well, we said, my brother's really good. And he said, well, why didn't you say before kind of thing? <laughs> and uh, uh, his brother, Dave Milligan, used to work for the BBC. Right. And he worked for the BBC for 20 years. He's produced the latest yeah. uh, and he's album. marvellous, absolutely marvellous. He said, well, he said... Um, I'm going to record you live," he said, "because that's what we should do." He mm. said, "You know, I can, you know, I can refine things if you want, absolutely, you yeah. know, um, which is what we did." Um, and so, uh, as a consequence, it sounds live. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it does. It as, it as the it's like you know a show almost. It's got so yeah. much spirit to it. I We're like very, that word. Spirit. Very pleased with it. You yeah, know. you should be. I mean, things like I mean Bob's famous song, "A Caravan, Caravan on Canvey okay. Island," at the end. <laughs> You know, we all started clapping and saying, oh, get off and things yeah. like that. You know, it's, it's quite, quite good yeah, fun. That's great. Yeah. And then, as I was saying about the energy of, of performing, I think any musician from any era, particularly rock and roll and blues and stuff like that, you really try and get it in one take because you get that honesty, that spirit, that kind of energy, yeah. that once it becomes take six, take seven, take eight, you just think you just need to get it played. And then you start looking at the clock. Especially if you've only got three hours, I yeah. guess, and you're thinking we've only got an hour left, and then the pressure builds, yeah. and then you don't play in the same way. So it's nice to have the time and the freedom. I think to so. Do that, and um, and um, when we recorded with um, Dave, that was the first time we met him. Okay. Although he, apart from Paul, obviously, because he's yeah, his younger yeah. brother. Yeah. But um, he he really put us at our ease and said, "Look, I'm just gonna." Sit here, and I'm going to record things, or I might suggest things. And you know, exceptionally nice guy, very, very talented. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, he he said at the end of the first day, I can't believe how much we've got done. Yeah. Um, and you know, he was pleased that we we'd got pretty much everything done down in two days. And the only reason why we needed to have any more time was because. Paul had a cold when he recorded um, one song, and he thought, well, that's just a bit nasal, can I redo that? Yeah. And he redid it, and it's great. And and, and as I say, uh, Bob said, I think an acoustic rhythm would sound nice on that. Mm. So effectively... A couple of overdubs, but not yeah. really. No. So, um, uh, uh, and, the, and the good thing there, of course, he said to us, um, well, I'm going on holiday. He said, I won't be able to send you any mixes for until I get back. Mm. Blow me down, two days later, he'd sent us about five. Yeah. And he'd say... Oh, I'm just going to do this. And yeah, we can't help it once we start. Well, you yeah. know. And, and, he, and he, at one stage, he sent us a, a mix at half past four in the morning because he obviously really enjoys oh, yeah. what he does. Yeah, you know. yeah that's what we loves do. It. Absolutely loves it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, uh, we've said to him, he's got no choice. He's got to do the next album. That's good. <laughs> and you know what you want. I mean, you're all experienced. You know, you're in a position now where you know what you're, lo what you're looking for. You know how you want to sound. Whereas back in the 60s, you've got tell somebody telling you how you should sound. Yes. It's a big difference between maybe management and managing yourself, if you excuse the obvious pun, yeah. but being managed and managing yourself and having yes. the experience yes. and telling a producer what you want as opposed to the producer telling you what you should play. No, that's right. It's a big change. Um, and I, of course, if it's something like Tony Visconti, you well, should Well, of course you listen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... and um, and every now and then, David said, well, how about this for a production idea? And we'd say, well, why not? You know, this is what you're good at. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he, he's done a, a very, very good job. Uh, I mean, this lineup of the management is exceptional because we've got three really good singers. Yeah. Um, Hall... Uh, very good at harmonies, so we've got some nice harmonies. Oh, Bob really, loves his harmonies, doesn't he? Oh, he loves it. I yeah. love them as well. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, in the fingers, we had four-piece four, four, four harmonies. But this is really good, very strong. I mean, stuff like um, the a cappella beginning of Nowhere Man, you know, it's not easy to get it just no, it's, right. No, it's difficult. Um, and it really, really sounds nice. And um, they're all exceptionally good guys to work with. They're friendly. We've all been in bands where we've had people that a little bit difficult to work with. Of course. I'm not going to mention Mickey Jarp. Don't mention Mickey, <laughs> whatever you do. <laughs> but going back to him, actually, to be fair, he's very talented. He's a good singer, great pianist. He writes some lovely songs. 
He was a good guitarist. He doesn't play guitar anymore now. Okay. Um, but he, he's put out some really good stuff. Uh, and he's got a lot of people all over the world, particularly in Scandinavia, apparently, who, who really like mm. what he does. Well, he's a legend of, yeah. of his uh, industry, really, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, everybody at my level knows of him. They yeah. know the name. Um, I was going to ask you about that as well, because you, you seem to have worked with Mickey uh, or in Legend for a lot of years. There's a lot of kind of reoccurring well, albums. Well, um, I've been in uh, five bands with him because I was in the Orioles, Legend. We played together rather surprisingly in a club band. Um, we're just doing MOR stuff mainly. Um, I was surprised he liked that, although there was a little bit of rock and roll. Um, and then we played, I've played in a couple of um, his Mickey Jump band yeah. um, outfits. And... Um, um, part of the I find part of the difficulty with working him is he hates set lists, absolutely hates set lists. Yeah. So he won't tell you what's coming, and he just starts something, and you think, "What's this?" You know, because yeah. a lot of rock and roll is the same. We all know that. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, because you've got those repeated patterns, twelve bars, or don't give or, the game away. Semi twelve bars. <laughs> no, but it's true. We have to make it look complicated, John. Yeah. Right, these complicated twelve. These bars. complicated twelve. At least bars, we don't yeah. have fourteen and a half bar blues like Johnny Hooker. Yeah, tricky stuff. <laughs> but as a consequence, you know, the, the continuity is not the way I like it. No, I think when you're playing, if you've got people on the floor and yeah. enjoying it. You want to keep them there, yeah. You know? And so you you need to uh, think about your set list in advance, and also you need good guys like Bob and Billy B who think we've lost them for a couple of numbers. Yeah. Now we're going to shift things around a bit, yeah. you know. And just um, so that's a talent as well, isn't it? It is being able to pace the show. Yeah. You, may, you might go and do maybe let's let's say Lee Constitutional Club or something yeah. like that on at half eight. Yeah. And you think, okay, we'll go on straight away, a bit of rock and roll, dance floor fall by about 20 to 9. And then you think, I always end up playing that one song too many where I'm playing a fast song and everyone's sat down. I think and I just need to put the ballad in there. Yeah. You know, it's kind of just pacing it right. Well, the thing is, you look at it and you think, oh, that's a shame. Floor's cleared. And you yeah. think, well, actually, these, these people do need a rest as well. They've all yeah, been dancing, you know. Yeah, we're all and, right. We're standing there and playing. We're and sometimes you look around and they're all singing and tapping their feet and smiling, yeah. you know, so they're still enjoying it. But I like to see people on the floor. Yeah, it's funny when, when you do this job. I mean, you'll know exactly what I mean. I know you will. Is you're aware of everybody in that room when you're up there. Yeah. And particularly if you've had enough over the years of can you turn it down, this is too loud, or yeah. whatever, that sort of stuff. If you're a young upstart like I was, making a load of noise and... So in the end, you end, you know when somebody moves, you know when they're screaming their orders over the bar, you think, oh, it might be a bit loud. You, you mm. kind of learn how to predict stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I've never got it right when people suddenly want to get up and they like, oh, one song too many, I've got a clear dance floor, they've gone and sat down. And uh, my dad always used to stand at the back and he sort of put his arms <laughs> around himself as if to sort of say, slow one. Go, oh, yeah, no, okay, yeah, put, yeah. A, put a slow one in. It's not easy to do, I mean, but if you've got a set list... Because you've got guitar changes and stuff like well, that. Well, Jumpy hates the set list. Yeah. Um, and uh, we did a, a legend reunion. We did two gigs at the Riga. Yeah. Uh, and, and Steve recorded them. 2011? But, yeah. Steve yeah. Catamore recorded those. Steve, yeah. Yeah. Nice guy. Very, I love Steve. Very yeah. helpful. And um, um, we said to him, well, we, we do need to run through, oh, yeah, if you must kind of thing. So we had a rehearsal, which he actually really enjoyed. Right. Although we, a couple of times I said to him, well, can we run over this? Oh, I've played that loads of times. Yeah, but I have Yeah, that's right, yeah. And um, we did the first night, and it really went down well. Uh, it really went down well. Because a lot of people had probably been, been to see him at the cricketers in 63 and 64 yeah. as well. And... Um, and he stayed up all night drinking and smoking, and the next day he got a sore throat and his voice was uh, not as good as it should be, mm. and he got really bad temper because of that. And, uh, and, um, I, and I will tell you this story because it shows you how he can be. A good friend of mine said, well, uh, I'm going to go and get you some honey, you know, and he came back with honey and he borrowed a teaspoon from the ladies in the kitchen. He said, take some of this, you know, that'll help. We all know that. Yeah, hot water and honey with maybe a bit of ginger does help if you've got a sore throat I'm not going to drink that I don't want that um, and uh, that same night um, Roy Young came to see him now, Roy Young was a very well known rock and roll pianist and singer in the 60s on drum beats which was um, right. before before Ready Steady Go before <laughs> Six Five Special and um, he wanted to do 
a double CD of Juppy songs, and he could easily have selected 24 really good songs. Yeah. Um, and he'd lined up a couple of not very well-known people to play, like Dave Edmonds and Albert Lee. Oh, right, yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, who are and, they? <laughs> and he, he had actually phoned up uh, Lassie Carback, a Swedish guy, a nice guy, who, who runs uh, Mickey Jupp's uh, website. Uh, and he said, would you mind putting me on the guest list for one of the nights at the Riga for the reunion gigs? Because I'd like to talk to Juppie about the, these um, covers, you know, maybe get some ideas from yeah. them. And Juppie said, uh, to Lars Lassie when he phoned him up I don't do set lists I don't do guest lists either um, and uh, Lassie phoned me and he said what do I do about this you know Roy Young wants to do this obviously most people want to encourage him he might yeah. even earn some money out of it Juppie get some cash and uh, Steve Casimel said oh sod him <laughs> he mm. said I'll just put him on my list and I was talking to to um, uh, Roy Young and I said uh, have you had a word with Juppie he said yeah but he's just not interested at all mm. really doesn't want to do it it does make you wonder where these people come from at times I think um, it, it, it comes out clearly in a, a book that was written about Mickey Jupp called um, A Hole in My Pocket which is a, the song title of one of the songs on the yeah. Red album Mike Wade wrote that he was a drummer Okay. Uh, again nice guy he's been around he was in uh, Sounds around. He was in a band called um, Peter and the Wolves as well. Peter and the Wolves. Although Tamla Motown recorded them and they changed the name to Wolf without telling them, <laughs> which is a better name. Anyway. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, but Mike said to me, he said, "I'm going to go around and I'm going to interview people that know Juppie very well." Uh, so he interviewed people like Mo and myself, Bob and Chris East, and various other old friends of his. And um, when he when he wrote the book, there were lots of episodes in there which showed Juppie being quite awkward and being difficult. Mm. And I said to Mike, "What does Mick think about this?" He said, "Well, he said to be honest, he said he read it and he said, oh, this is all fair comment." And I think, um, in spite of his outstanding talent, he's not as secure as. Mm. We would like to think he is. You know, we've all got our own insecurities. Of course, yeah. Think, you know? We all think, oh, I can't quite play this the way I want to, or, you know, I'm not happy with what I've done here, you know. And, and the other people, they say, oh, sounds fine to me. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a fine line between being a perfectionist and being able to just enjoy the fact that it's raw, it's live, it's got yeah. energy. If we were yeah. all perfectionists, make the perfect album, it wouldn't have the bounce, it maybe wouldn't have the same energy. And I think also... Mm. Um, where Mickey's concerned, I've never met him, but I've met people like that. And although I don't understand where they're coming from, I think sometimes, in my opinion, it just comes from they are so um, true to themselves to a fault. Yeah. I thought, this is what that, this is what I do, and I don't yeah. believe in anything other than that. I, I don't know. I don't. I've never met him, but I, th I think I, th I think <laughs> it's a good summary, you know. And I, and I I think it's a shame that he wasn't prepared to actually do what people wanted sometimes because he's yeah. missed some really really good opportunities um, I think there's there's a saying in um, believe it or not wrestling of all things where people live their gimmick and I think uh, like so, someone like Big Daddy or Giant Haystacks yeah. they live the gimmick but there actually, there actually is a man behind that image yeah. Yeah. but they get so caught up <clears> in living <throat> that gimmick that they become it 24-7 they're on the drink they're doing this and I don't yeah. do this I don't do that and you think yeah. if you can get to the man you get some sense out of him sometimes. Yeah. It's it's a funny sort of world, but you worked with him for a lot of years, so you, either you're very very tolerant. Well, I uh, um, or I'd really like to. I still work with him. <laughs> there are other people who say they wouldn't work with him anymore. I'd still work with him because he is an old friend, you know. Mm. And uh, it's nice to see him when he comes down. Um, I, I know that he's apt to be a bit of a prima donna, and he will probably admit. Mm. Privately, he knows that. That's probably the secret if he if he is yeah. able to admit it <clears throat> yeah. privately. But you see, um, if you take to management, for example, the various different lineups we've had there, we haven't had that problem. We've just had guys that are a bit long in the tooth, yeah, but experienced. They've done all sorts of different gigs. Yeah, they love what they do. You know, I, I I've said, you know, we do what we love and we love what we do. Yeah, it's the, the right kind of stuff. The stuff mm. that we were brought up on. You know, so it's. 
people say to me, it's just a generational thing. And uh, Groucho Marx said, nostalgia isn't what it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) But it is. Yeah, and you're still um, enjoying it. You know, I mean, it's not... we We don't do this for the money, initially. It's nice to get a few quid. But we do it because of how it makes us feel. Well, sem- semi-pro bands have never earned very much. No. Um, and actually, if you go back to what we were earning in the 70s with a band I was in called Salty Dog, playing five, six nights a week, yeah. if you just upscale that by just inflation, the musicians should be earning a lot more than they are now. And when you divide it between four or five... That's it, yeah. It's nothing. Um, so you've got to enjoy it. Hmm. Um, you've got to want to do it. Um, and these, these guys into management... If you take the, the current band as an example, you know, we it's like we've been working together for ages. Mm. And I've, I've not known Bob that long, although that's not quite true. I, I, I went to see Bob when he was in Granny Grunt, yeah. when he was in his um, um, screaming face, you know, the, the heavy rock, the heavy, Robert yes, Plant thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is another the, um, It's not, not, not my bag, but Bob's got such a good voice. Yeah, you know? he has, yeah. And Paul's got a very good voice. Yeah, well. and it works. That... And uh, Billy B, I've been in the band now with him for uh, probably 20 years, different bands. I was in a band called Hunt, Runt, Shunt and Cunningham. You yep. have to say that very carefully when you're drunk. You do, yes. I, I, I and, was worried about saying that one. <laughs> and... Um, Vic was in that band as well, and, and the, the the singer of that, um, Tony Sumner, mm-hmm. was just such a lovely singer, a uh, good pianist, and and that that band I was in from 1993 until just a couple of years ago. Uh, I actually made the mistake of putting a list of all the bands I've ever been on on yeah. Facebook, and a friend of mine said, "Isn't it a shame that John can't hold down a job?" <laughs> 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 yeah, I noticed that you'd been in that band for from about ninety three until well until about twenty. About, it was a, a two or three years ago because yeah. Tony uh, uh, just decided he he's got fed up with lung, lung, lumbering things around. You know, he's um, seventy eight, I think. So, Fair enough. Government, if he wants to take things a bit easier, we don't have roadies, John. No, no. But, to... it, but, it, but he was a, a great singer, very good country songs, and very very funny as well. You know, he would say things like. Uh, we're going to have a, 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 a break for a short time now because we haven't had a short time for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd say, we're going to do You Never Can Tell because you never can tell when somebody's going to come up and say, does the band want to drink? You know, you're very dry. And he used to sing a couple of rude songs as well, um, yeah. which, which people always used to ask for. Were so, you doing the cabaret circuit? Because it was reading through the people you've worked with, not, uh, people not like Mike Reed and stuff. Um, when, um, <clears throat> when I was playing in various bands... Uh, I worked for a long time with a guy called Trevor Morgan, who is a very good keyboard player. And um, a little while ago, he decided that he wanted to give up playing um, because he was still working for his cousin in a claims management um, uh, company. And finding that a bit stressful, I said, Trevor, you've got that around the wrong way. At your age, you should keep playing and give up working. (laughs) And um, I joined a band with him in 1978, and uh, uh, he's an exceptionally uh, talented pianist. Had a good guy on guitar called Tony Evans, who's no longer with us. Um, and we've had uh, various different drummers. That, the drummer then was Jim Smith. Okay. Again, no longer with us. So it's a, you get, as you get older, you find Unfortunately, this is the problem. Yeah. Um, but they were doing uh, restaurants and a little bit of cabaret and functions and things like that. <clears throat> and um, uh, with various different musicians coming and going, I played with him from 78 to the end of 2011, I think. Wow. Um, so it was almost like being married. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it is, yeah. So we annoyed each other as well as like each other. Well, you do, yeah. But he, he, and he, he's uh, very good at home recording as well. But uh, we, we backed various people. And um, I remember backing Mike Reed uh, when, before he was in EastEnders. Yeah. Um, and he said, um, would you mind playing me on and off? We said, no, that's no problem at all. He said, what do you want? Uh, any particular songs? No, no, no. He said, you guys know what you're doing. Just do what you like. Mm. Um, and uh, he said, uh, I do want to sing uh, Bye Bye Blackbird. So he said, well, that's okay. What key do you want it in? I don't know. Just do what you think. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> he said, I have to warn you, though. I will be taking the piss out of the yeah. band. Um, and that was part of the course, really. 
Uh, we played fairly recently with the management at Hockley Lawn Tennis Club, and at the end of the gig, the organiser said, what a brilliant band, he said. This is the best live band we've had all week. <laughs> and then he sent me an email. He said, I hope I didn't upset anybody. I said, look, you know, I told him the story about Mike Reed, and I said, we've worked with comedians. Yeah. You'd have to try much harder. Definitely, but, yeah. Um, yeah. I did I did a bit, little bit of cabaret with Jess Conrad. Um, that came about because Rhett Stoller was in the band. Rhett Stoller was a, a well-known session musician in the early 60s. Did you work it, with Rhett? You worked with Rhett? Yeah. Yeah. And this band was called the Rhett Stoller Four, and there was a guy called Bob Heath in it, local guy, good singer, very yeah. good singer. Um, and Bernie Martin, the drummer, um, and Rhett were also in Russ Saint in the New Notes. Um, that was quite a popular band in the early 60s. Okay. Um, and he, he gave us a lot of good advice uh, about what to do and what not to do, because he was an old... Uh, old hand at this and I was probably 16 or 17 and Bob was slightly older and I remember him saying to Bob you've got to look at the audience because Bob tend to stand sideways you mm. know and uh, I mean Jess Conrad he was a good showman but not really a good singer uh, he's one of these guys who's annoyingly handsome you know and of course the girls all liked him mm. um, but I remember one particular time we were playing in some club up north. It was the first time I'd seen huge, great northern clubs. Right. And we were doing an Anthony Newley song called Do You Mind? And there's a bass riff at the beginning, and then the vocal comes in. And he came in in the wrong key. <laughs> and he told me in the... Uh, told me off in, in the dressing room, oh, you were playing in the wrong key, you, you put me off. And, and I, being young and stupid, I had a go at him. And he huffed off in a bit of a hissy fit. And uh, Rhett just put his hand on my shoulder. He said, listen to me. He said, I've been doing this a fairly long time. He said, you've got to bear in mind that um, you know you're right. I know you're right. Jess probably knows you're right, but he's paying your wages. Mm. <laughs> That's true, yeah. That's true. And, of course, the thing is the cabaret circuit's a bit like that. But we've had some good fun. But then in Legend, we... Uh, we didn't play with uh, Freddie Starr, but we, we, he was the guest act, the star, really, of the show. In one gig we did. And he asked Mo if he could borrow his guitar. Because he, he plays guitar and he was, he was a good singer, actually. Yeah, was a good was singer. a good singer, yeah. Um, and Mo had a Strat at the time. And he, he dropped a Strat on the floor deliberately. Oh. Yeah, and Mo was obviously furious with him. <clears> and then he, he had a group of people around him, including our road manager, one of our road managers, Pete Wormsley. I haven't seen him for years. I don't know where he is even. But um, uh, Pete was um, making the mistake of heckling Freddie Starr, which is not wise. No. And um, he said to Pete, oh, he said, um, he said, you with the long hair, he said, what job do you do? He said, oh, I'm a roadie. He said, oh, right, he said. He said, so you, you drive other people around and you, you pick up or carry up other people's heavy stuff, you know. So uh, yeah. Pete didn't know what to say to that, really, you know. But, uh, I mean, Freddie Starr, he's a... Well, he was a major talent, I think. Yeah. But just on the borders of being completely bonkers. Yeah. I've, uh, he had those glittery eyes, and you thought... Yeah. If you annoy him, is he going to get really dangerous? I think he was probably the most dangerous of the comedians. I mean, that's why he never got... Didn't, didn't get a lot of TV... Because I never knew what he was going to say. But obviously very got, funny. But yeah, great. Have very you ever funny. seen that thing that he does where he sings Vincent and pretends slows to it down, tape it slow? Yeah, speed it's one up. of my favourite. There, I'm going to bore you for a second though. Get a bit self-indulgent for a second here, John. I could watch that every day. I could watch Les Dawson play the piano yes. every day, and I could watch Norman Collier with his broken microphone every day, and I'd never get bored of it. Because well, those things are all clever. So genius. That, that thing with the tape slowing down, speeding it's up. It's fantastic. And then him, him kind of marching fast as That's well. That's it, yeah. was very clever. It's brilliant. And, and Les Dawson uh, was actually extremely good pianist. You've got to be, though, haven't you? Got, I mean, I don't just, play. play really nicely and then play something a semitone too high or too yeah. flat. You know, I think. That's why, I suppose, the better the musician you are, the easier it is to play badly and yes. kind of know... How to play the exact Oh, that's my excuse, then. That, that's your excuse. I've given you the excuse after all these years. <laughs>